The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. They have a really hard time actually talking through their ideas and making sure that they actually make sense um, with experts in the field. If those experts in the field, they don't have the adequate security clearances. And so it really walls off government, people who are having to make important decisions in government from others who could provide input that would help them make better decisions. And so, you know, it really keeps people in government uh, from making the best decisions they can because they can't uh, share ideas and information with people who are, who are outside of their narrow programs. And that's not just not they can't share it with people outside of government. They can't share it with people inside government who are not cleared into their programs. And so how these compartments are defined can make a real uh, difference in terms of who you can talk to um, and may wall you off from the very people that you ought to be having conversations with before making important decisions uh, for the U.S. government. I'm Stephanie Pell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 26, 2022. What if we declared an end to the costly system of how we classify national security information in the United States? Ona Hathaway, the Gerard C. and Bernice Latrobe Smith Professor of International Law at Yale Law School, poses this question in her article, Secrecy's End. I talked with Ona about some of our classification system's most corrosive effects on our democratic system of governance and some proposals she has for reforming our classification system. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 26th. Ona Hathaway and Secrecy's End. Ona, in your article, Secrecy's End, you pose a thought experiment where you ask the question, what if we declared an end to the costly system of how we classify national security information? Before we discuss the contours of that thought experiment and the insights it provides, I'd like to talk about the nature of our current classification system, how it works, what its purpose is, and how it's enforced in addition to the corrosive effects of the system that caused you to engage in this thought experiment. So let's start out. What is its purpose? Well, The idea behind the classification system, which is basically the system that identifies certain information as information that can only be shared with a limited number of people who have clearance into particular programs, 
And the, the idea behind that is that there's certain information the government doesn't want to have our enemies get their hands on and certain information that's really crucial for the U.S. government to be able to protect. So that's the basic insight of the system. And this whole system of classification is built up around that idea. So how does it work to accomplish that purpose? And who classifies the information? And what are the current levels of classification? So the the system kind of has two key parts. So there are those who can initially classify information. They, they get to decide which information is the kind of information that should be kept secret. And then there's a second part of the system, which is that anything that uses that information is classified because it is derivative of the information that has been set as classified. So the way I encountered this information um, was as someone who engaged in derivative classification. So I worked um, at the Department of Defense and the General Counsel's office as a lawyer, and I would be working on documents that used information that had been classified, so facts um, that had been classified. We were engaging in legal analysis. We had to talk about and address various kinds of classified facts. And whenever you produce a document that relies on classified information, that document itself has to be classified. So there are not just thousands of people who have access to that kind of classification that, that who are part of this system, but there are around 5 million people who currently have access to classified information. And um, now there are different levels and you asked, you know, what are these different levels? There's confidential information, there's secret information, and there's top secret information. And then within that, there can be different, what are sometimes referred to as compartments. So there uh, may be a compartment um, of information that could either be secret or top secret um, that you only get access to if you're cleared into that particular compartment. And the idea behind this is, well, if some of the information is, is um, disclosed, um, it's not all going to be disclosed. So, so just because you have secret access doesn't mean you have access to everything that is classified as secret, you have access only to the information that you actually have specific access to. So there's a whole set of rules around management of the information, management of who gets access to the information, um, both in physical form and, of course, um, you know, through uh, conversations. You know, you can only talk to people who are cleared into the proper programs. For meetings, you have to make sure that everybody in the meeting is cleared into the program that you're going to be discussing. Um, if you're going to engage in email traffic, you have to be engaging in email traffic on the system that's cleared for, for that particular program um, or that level of classification. So there's a whole apparatus built up around this. It's incredibly extensive. Now, this apparatus that exists, th this system you point out relies almost entirely on executive order, and it's also backed by criminal statutes enacted by Congress. So I'd like to talk a bit about how this system is enforced. And, and, and if you like, uh, start with the, the criminal statutes. 
Yeah. So let me begin with the with the executive order point, because I think it's an important one. And so what's kind of remarkable about this whole system of secrecy is that it really is structured by an executive order that's issued by the president. And there have been several of these issued since World War II, um, which is when the practice initiated of the president issuing an executive order that lays out how certain kinds of vital information um, is going to be classified and limitations on its sharing. Now, an executive order, as your listeners will know, is just an order that's issued by the president. And um, it only has the power that the president himself has. Now, so then the question might be, well, how in the world does this affect anybody who's outside of the executive branch? And the answer is that There is a law that was passed by Congress, the Espionage Act of 1918, which we which still basically exists today and was one of the key ways in which the law is enforced. That is the legal tool that is used for enforcing the classification rules in the executive order. Now, it doesn't actually refer to the executive order. It couldn't have because the executive orders are issued beginning in World War II. And the Espionage Act was passed in 1918, so well before any of these executive orders even existed. But what the what the Espionage Act says is that um, that effectively, if you disclose classified information or information that's harmful to national security, then uh, that is a that's a criminal offense. And it's not the only it's not the only law. There are a number of laws that that address disclosure of classified information. Um, but that's one of the most most commonly used, um, 18 U.S.C. 793, Section 793 to 98, are some of the most commonly used portions of the of the U.S. Code, um, and those originate in the in the 1918 Espionage Act. Reality winner, your listeners may recognize her name. She was convicted under Section 793, which prohibits um, those from gathering or transmitting information that's relevant to national security. So so there's a whole set of statutes. I mean, again, there are many of them. I I won't bore your listeners by going through the whole set, although the article um, that you mentioned sort of lays them all out in in some detail. And these all in different ways cover instances where a person either who does not have legal access to classified information gains access and then discloses it, or if somebody has legal access to classified information and willfully provides it to someone who doesn't have legal access, all of these can subject you to criminal sanction uh, for violating the law, even though the executive order itself doesn't actually have power beyond the executive branch. And since we're talking about the Espionage Act, there have been some controversial applications of it of late, raising concerns by journalists. Can you talk a little bit about that? There have been concerns raised about whether the Espionage Act might be used to go after journalists. And in particular, the Assange case has has really raised alarm bells among journalists. So Julian Assange, um, people may remember, was uh, initially indicted for his role in basically assisting hacking, gaining illegal access to information. Um, But then that was later expanded to include an Espionage Act charge, 
for disseminating classified information on, um, on WikiLeaks. Charlie Savage and many other journalists um, raised the alarm bells when that happened because traditionally um, the Espionage Act has not been used to charge journalists for disseminating information, even if that information is in fact classified. And many pointed out that what Assange had done in, in posting that information on WikiLeaks wasn't really all that different from what major news outlets do all the time, which is they get a leaked document that might still have classification markings on it. And sometimes they do go to the to the agency from which that document originated and make sure that disclosing it isn't going to do harm to national security before they post it. But but they often do put it out there. And and doing so is formally, officially, if you closely read the Espionage Act, a violation of the Espionage Act. But traditionally, journalists have not been charged with violations of the Espionage Act. The Department of Justice has had a set of kind of internal guidelines that provide that they won't use the Espionage Act against, against journalists. And so this charging of, of Assange really got people worried. Now, of course, there are definitely people who argue, well, he's not really a journalist and you know, he was he was involved in in gaining access to this information, not just sort of recipient of a leak. And, you know, there are other ways in which it's not like a typical journalist. But but I think many people think that's splitting hairs and that, you know, really what he was doing and the thing that he has this Espionage Act charge against him for is the kind of thing the New York Times and the Washington Post do on a regular basis. And that's part of what's got people worried that maybe this kind of informal policy that DOJ has observed for a long time is is is, is pretty weak and is one that that the DOJ is prepared to bend and break, perhaps, um, and that that could make journalists quite vulnerable. You mentioned Reality Winner. She, of course, is a government employee who was charged and and served time for for violating the Espionage Act. Of course, government employees, when they violate classification rules, they aren't all prosecuted. There, there are other ways that the government disciplines them, if you will. Some of that occurs through both administrative and civil penalties. Could you talk a little bit about those, please? Yeah. So there's a whole host of different ways in which the federal government can um, exact a cost uh, on people who disclose classified information. Now, there is a lot of, of information that gets kind of bandied about and leaked in Washington. Um, so it's not uncommon for information that is formally classified to be um, disseminated, but it's done at, at some pretty significant risk. So there is the, the risk of, of criminal prosecution and criminal sanctions, that is, to be honest, pretty pretty uncommon. Federal government doesn't bring that many criminal charges against uh, people for for violations of these criminal um, laws. Which more common is, as you mentioned, these administrative sanctions. So the kinds of administrative administrative sanctions that can be brought against government employees, in particular, is they can be fired. They can have their access to classified information withdrawn, and that can effectively be the same thing as being fired because if you're in a job that requires having access to certain kinds of classified information and you lose your security clearance, then that's basically the same thing as being told you can't do your job anymore. Um, and so you effectively lose, you lose your job. 
um, even if you don't lose your job, maybe you've left government, you might lose your ability to ever re-enter government if your security clearance is revoked or if there's some negative information in your file about your failure to protect classified information. And then there's a whole set of rules around pre-publication review that apply to anyone who's had a security clearance, in particular, those who've had top secret security clearances, that they require that they get prior OKs to publish information. And if they don't follow those rules, they could be sued and have their um, royalties, um, any inf- money that they've, that they've earned from a book, for instance, that they may have that they may have published um, withdrawn. So there are a number of kinds of sanctions that apply that are that are pretty common and that people really are fearful of. Um, I think perhaps the one that people are most fearful of is, is losing their access to classified information because that can prevent them from either continuing the job they're in or ever getting access again. But there are other kinds of administrative and civil sanctions the government has access to that are pretty intimidating for ordinary people. You make the argument or observe that we have a massive overclassification problem. What do you mean by that? And, and why do we have that problem? What I mean by that is just there is so much information that's classified. So it's hard to get a handle on exactly how much information there is out there that's classified. But the latest number suggests that um, around 50 million classified documents are created every year. And meanwhile, the backlog, the declassification process is, is creeping along at a very slow pace. And so that means that we're adding roughly 50 million documents a year, but we're taking away very a very small percentage of that. So the edifice of classified information that exists just continues to grow and grow and grow. And... My experience when I was in the Department of Defense and I had top secret SCI clearance, so special compartmented information clearance, and saw a lot of information on a regular basis that was among the most highly classified information. And part of what was most remarkable about that that information was how unremarkable a lot of that information really was. And it was striking to me how much of the information that I was seeing in that position was not really all that different. Obviously, there were some differences, but a lot of it was really not all that different from what I was reading in the New York Times, the Washington Post that day. And so lots of information is classified that that is a kind of ordinary knowledge. Um, and what that means and what that does is that people who are in government and who have access to classified information or who have had access to classified information are put in a really bad position because it's very difficult to talk about the work that you do or that you have done um, with people who don't have access to classified information, who don't have a security clearance, because it's hard to remember what's officially classified. What did I see in a you know top secret classified document? And what did I just read in the New York Times? Or what did I see in both places? And if I saw them in both places, actually, officially, I'm not supposed to really talk about it either. And what that does is it really closes off the American people from information about what their government is up to. And it really means that there's huge amounts of information being generated that people in government can't speak about and can't explain to the American people what we're doing and what kinds of foreign policy we're, we're pursuing and why. And 
you know, it really inhibits the capacity of the American people to really understand what our government is doing. And for people who've been in government to try and translate and explain um, the purposes of various government programs or to translate the information um, that they're seeing for, for ordinary people because they have to be worrying about whether they might be inadvertently disclosing some classified information for which they could be held responsible. So those are some of the pathologies that you've identified with this system. I'd, I'd like to discuss a few others. You, you make, of course, the broad point that secrecy frustrates the democratic process. And, and in talking about the Julian Assange case, you, you've also talked about um, how the current system intimidates the press. There's also issues with selective prosecution, correct? That's right. I mean, so one of the real worries is that there's so much leaking going on in government um, and so much information potentially being disclosed that could, in theory, be subject to criminal sanction, that it, it really does open the door to, to selective prosecution. And, and that's a real danger because it means that government can kind of pick and choose who they're going to go after and really intimidate people who have views that government, you know, whatever the administration is at the time, disfavors and allow everybody else to get off scot-free. And so there's a real danger in this kind of overclassification and the way in which that potentially subjects a lot of people to, at least in theory, criminal liability for their actions. You give the example of the investigation of uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton for allegedly mishandling classified information by how she she transmitted email. You you indicate that that is the kind of case that really illuminates these selective prosecution problems. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the 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 what's remarkable about the situation with Hillary Clinton's emails is that what she had done in setting up a private email server was something that many government officials had done before. And in fact, her predecessors had done before. And of course, nobody had been subject to the threat of prosecution for it before Hillary Clinton was Uh and, and in fact, that later was disclosed that the Trump administration, which of course ran against Hillary Clinton on these charges, uh, you know, was all about the fact that she uh, had disclosed these emails um, through setting up this private server. And then it turned out they uh, also were sub- uh, sending information through private emails, unclassified private emails and, and other kinds of unclassified apps. So it was a pretty common action that they were taking, not to say that it necessarily was wise. You know, government business should always be done on government computers, not only because of concerns about classification, but also because of government records um, requirements. But but nonetheless, you know, the fact that that was so politicized and that she was um, there was an investigation to determine whether there, were, there was any criminal activity seems to have been pretty politically motivated or at least potentially related to politics and not so much to any kind of severity of, of action that she undertook. And that just illustrates the way in which these kinds of actions, the fact that there's so much classified information out there that it's almost impossible to do your job, um, especially if you travel, 
uh, without potentially disclosing classified information on unclassified channels uh, means that people are subject to potential criminal prosecution that's very dangerous and and frankly doesn't make a whole lot of sense because a lot of that information honestly doesn't have any impact on U.S. national security in any significant way. And so it would be one thing if this was information that we really worried was going to do serious harm to U.S. national security, but it's another, if it's information that is effectively the same thing that you could read in the paper that morning or get the same information on the internet that afternoon. Um, And that's often the case. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime identity theft? stalking or even violence. I used to think this was silly. And then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023. And angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, It finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports Uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. 
When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. So another pathology that you identify, and this is really interesting, is that you say, argue, that the current system actually has really significant costs to national security, that overclassification can breed sloppiness and vulnerability, and and that too much secrecy and compartmentalization in government leads to bad decisions. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, there there are several ways in which I think that this is a problem. So on the one hand, uh, there's the sort of old saying that when everything is classified, nothing is classified. So when you have millions upon millions of documents being classified every year and you have four or five million people who have access to classified information, the idea of actually keeping that information secret is is pretty laughable. <laughs> it it is just hard for for that many people in that to keep that much information truly secret. And it's part of the reason they have to bring in private contractors to manage this information. That's part of the reason for the Snowden revelations was he was working for a private contractor with a private contractor. 
So you have to bring in a lot more people to manage this information, a lot more people have access to this information. So that's one way in which having so many secrets and so many people in the system who have access to secrets just makes it really hard to actually keep real secrets um, because you you have your your spread so thin, you're spending so many so much resources on trying to keep a lot of secrets that don't matter um, that you're not really focused on keeping the the secrets that really do matter. But it can also lead to some sloppiness and and vulnerability. Um, you know, you can assume that information is because it's classified that it's protected, but often it really isn't. You know the that information can still be really widely disseminated if it's classified and there's nothing magical about a classification marking that prevents it from being but being disseminated. And it has left us open to, to real vulnerabilities. The Office of Policy Management hack, for instance, in 2014, really disclosed a lot of information, personal data of persons who've gone through the security clearance process, including myself, whose information was taken um, because they didn't have some pretty simple security measures in place that had they really been thinking about how do we actually protect our national security and the information that matters in an effective way, we might have spent a little less time on protecting these secrets that are not really secrets and more time thinking about, okay, the information the OPM has is incredibly valuable. We need to have much better systems for ensuring that that's not vulnerable. And and we weren't thinking about it that way. And as a result, that information, which is really important information, has been has been disseminated almost certainly to, to foreign hackers. So those kinds of things really make a difference. And then last, what I found in government that and I found in working with people in government as an academic on the outside of government is that one thing that classification does is it, it walls off the people who are in these programs, in these classified programs. It walls them off from people outside of those programs. They can't share their ideas. They can't seek information. They have a really hard time actually talking through their ideas and making sure that they actually make sense um, with experts in the field. If those experts in the field are not part of the, uh, they don't have the adequate security clearances. And so it really walls off government, people who are having to make important decisions in government from others who could provide input that would help them make better decisions. And so, you know, it really keeps people in government. Uh, from making the best decisions they can because they can't uh, share ideas and information with people who are who are outside of their narrow programs. And that's not just not they can't share it with people outside of government. They can't share it with people inside government who are not cleared into their programs. And so how these compartments are defined can make a real uh, difference in terms of who you can talk to um, and may wall you off from the very people that you ought to be having conversations with before making important decisions uh, for the U.S. government. You also make the point that there's a whole lot of information now in the private sector that is very worth protecting that our system really doesn't adequately accommodate. That's right. It's really remarkable that our system is very focused on keeping information that's in government's hands from getting into foreign adversaries' hands. That's really what it's centered on. But these days, 
it's not necessarily the case that government has the information that we care about. The private sector has so much information about all of us, um, has so much information about our locations, about our buying habits, about you know those of us who are in debt. I mean, it's remarkable the kinds of information that that the private sector has access to. A lot of these apps actually sell information about location. If you aggregate the information that a lot of these that Google has and the other private that, that Facebook has and other private data aggregators have, you can find out a lot about a person. Um, you can figure out if they're pregnant, perhaps even before they realize it. You can figure out if they're having an affair. You can figure out uh, if they are in debt and therefore potentially vulnerable to bribery. And there's a whole lot of information that is in private hands. And we do nothing to protect that information uh, from getting into the wrong hands. In fact, lots of that information is aggregated by data aggregators and is available for sale both to private um, commercial actors and potentially to foreign adversaries. Even our own government purchases some of this information and uses information from data aggregators as part of immigration enforcement, for instance. So it is an unappreciated problem, I think, that, that we have not begun to think about. I think we tend to think of data privacy as a civil rights issue, and, and certainly it is that you know, our ability to control information about ourselves and who has information about us is, is a really fundamental private right. But it's also a national security disaster because if you take, for instance, that information in the OPM hack, um, which gives you information about everyone who had top secret access granted in a certain period of time, and you cross-reference that with other privately available information, you can learn a lot about people who have access to top secret information and potentially compromising information about those people. And, you know, in the future, it's, the problem's only going to get worse. We're going to have more and more information available about us. We're going to have, you know, our children are growing up on, on um, social media. There's information avail available about them from early on. It's going to make it pretty impossible for us to prevent foreign adversaries from learning a lot about us if we don't do more to try and manage access that private information and give consumers, individual people, better control over the information that's being collected about them and that's being put up for sale about them. And right now, we just don't have very good laws about that. So with all of these problems that you've identified, it, it does raise the question, what should we do about them? And, and that brings us back to the initial thought experiment that you you ask your reader and, and I guess more broadly this audience to engage with. What if we declared an end to the costly system of how we classify national security information? So so does first of all, does that mean that we're abandoning secrecy altogether? Well, so ab abandoning the classification system wouldn't necessarily mean abandoning secrecy if you think about it. There's secrecy all around us. Families have secrets. Schools have secrets. Corporate organizations have secrets. Uh, as I mentioned in the article, the formula for Coke is apparently a very well-hidden secret. So there are lots of secrets or trade secrets, lots of secrets that are out there that are protected in ways that have nothing to do with 
um, a system of classification or security clearances. There's all kinds of techniques uh, for keeping secrets that have nothing to do with a system of security clearance. And so even if government didn't have a system of security clearances and classification of information, it would be able to use techniques that, say, the private sector uses to to keep its information secret. So it doesn't it doesn't mean that sort of suddenly the doors are all thrown open and every email every government actor sends is suddenly out on the internet for anyone to read. Um, that's certainly not the case. That there would still be ways of keeping information secret or private. It wouldn't be um, protected by a system of classification, but it would be uh, protected by other techniques of secrecy. And part of what I did in this thought experiment was look at sort of what do private companies do to protect their secrets? Because, of course, you know, they have some of the same kinds of concerns. As I mentioned, the formula for Coke, you know, there's there's all kinds of trade secrets and, and um, information that companies want to keep secret, keep private that they don't want to share with the rest of the world. And they have techniques and tools that they've developed for trying to deal with that. And as I dug into it, I realized that some of these tools are really mimic what the government already does. And in a way, if we think about a classification system, it's just a way of sort of saying who gets access to what and when. Now, what's different about it is that it's backed up by a set of criminal sanctions, that is the, the Espionage Act. But actually, increasingly, some of these rules in the private sector are being backed up with criminal sanctions as well. So in, in some ways, the two are, are merging a bit. But there are other techniques that that private sector uses. They limit information flow and access. They, they rely on building loyalty. Of course, they have access to criminal penalties to some degree, not as much. But there is an Economic um, Espionage Act that was passed in 1996 that mimics the Espionage Act from 1918. And they too have administrative and civil penalties, much like the government sector does. So it's not it's not a panacea to simply say, like, let's give up on the on the classification system. But what it does tell us is, first of all, we don't necessarily need it. Um, we, we could rely on the same tools that, that the private sector relies on and probably protect information pretty well. We wouldn't necessarily need this sort of government built system. But we have to think about what is it that we want this classification system to be doing? What is the purpose of it? And has it gotten out of hand? And, and I think that the answer to the last question is yes, it's gotten out of hand. The purpose of it is to protect the secrets that really need protecting. But what has happened is that that system has really spiraled. The amount of secrets that are being kept have gone up to the point where the information that's included in the system just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so rather than scrapping the system altogether, I make some recommendations for trying to, to reel it back to something that makes a lot more sense and that actually would do a better job of protecting the secrets that matter. So yes, your proposals for reform, which in some respects are very forward-leaning, but, but they're in many ways very practical and they address a number of the pathologies that we've talked about. So your first one, automatic declassification of documents older than 10 years. How do you think that will be useful in reforming the current system? 
So right now, it is supposed to be the case that when one um, classifies a document, um, you're supposed to indicate sort of when it can be declassified. And and you're not supposed to identify it as being kept uh, secret for more than 25 years. Though in practice, it turns out that almost everybody ratchets everything up to the highest level of classification and the longest period of classification that they can, because there's very little penalty for doing so. And to get information declassified, it's an extremely cumbersome and difficult process. So you can seek declassification, but declassification review takes forever. It's very under-resourced. So the idea behind this proposal is let's flip the script. Let's turn it around. Let's say that everything automatically gets um, declassified after 10 years with, with some narrow exceptions. Uh, for instance, um, identities of still living intelligence sources. And, and let's say if an agency feels it's absolutely necessary to keep information classified for longer than that period of time, they're the ones who have to make the case that it needs to stay classified um, and that they should make that case to an interagency appeals panel um, that would be made up not just of senior level representatives from agencies and intelligence community, as the, the panel is now, but that it would be made up of people who are both from government and from outside government, who would make a decision as to whether, okay, yes, this is information really that does need to be kept secret longer than 10 years, and there's good reason for that, or no, you know, the case for keeping this secret for more than 10 years really um, doesn't make a lot of sense, and, and in fact, it should be disclosed. And so it would, it would essentially flip the default, and it would create a real incentive for government to put resources into the review process, because if it's not reviewed, it automatically gets declassified. And so that that's the idea, is create an incentive for actually reviewing the information carefully um, and say, you know, in cases where we're in equipoise, um, it, should be, it should be declassified. And that then allows us to really focus our energies on keeping the secrets, the rest of the secrets, much more effectively, put all of our resources into actually keeping that information um, out of the wrong hands. Um, so that's, that's the first step. And of course, you also suggest that, look, there may be reasons or, or there may be good candidates for documents to be declassified earlier than 10 years, and that, that perhaps the government can use technology to help review records to determine, you know, what those best candidates might be. So, so you seem to be wanting to sort of revamp the system as a whole, looking at what is appropriately classified or not. Absolutely. I, I think the problem with the current system is that it relies on um, human judgment at every step of the way. And it requires individuals to review every piece of information before it's declassified. And there's just so much information being created um, and, and too little resources to be able to actually do that in an effective way. And as a result, we just keep accumulating more and more classified information. And there is a way to actually use um, AI, big data. There are techniques now that would allow us to much more effectively identify information that really is no longer problematic and probably to do that in a way that's much more effective than human beings who may not actually have access to all the relevant information. 
And you could use AI as well to identify people who are overclassifying, you know, who who are who are classifying on a regular basis at the highest possible level, or sort of classifying at levels that are higher than their colleagues, and sort of identify them and let them know that they're sort of out of line with the level of class in terms of the classification levels that they're identifying than others in similar positions, and and that allows also for retraining and kind of trying to stop the process at the beginning. So because it, we're facing a moment at which big data is potentially a huge threat, but we're also facing a moment at which those same tools of AI and big data give us tools and techniques to actually identify the information that should be kept secret um, and separating it out from the information that doesn't necessarily need to be kept secret any longer and that therefore can be disclosed. And I think there's a case for government to really begin to investigate how they would use that these kinds of new technologies to to reduce the amount of information we need to save and therefore save resources and time and money to be able to spend it more effectively on things that actually do improve our national security. So you also make the proposal of revising the criminal laws to reduce criminalization and and you have three or four significant ways to guide that reduction of criminalization? Yeah, so I think one step is to just is to begin to review the various forms of criminalization for disclosure of, of classified information. As I mentioned, there's a whole array of statutes that apply to disclosure of classified information. It's a real mishmash of various statutes that have kind of aggregated um, over the years. And, and there hasn't really been an effort to, to seriously address whether these are outdated and inconsistent with the way in which the modern information age actually works. So, for instance, Congress itself should get more into the business of thinking about what really should be criminalized and what shouldn't. The criminal laws that they use, that they applied um, that are applied to enforce these executive orders or laws that were passed by Congress, but but not in ways that where Congress really thought carefully through whether they actually wanted to enforce these particular executive orders. It's just been used by the courts um, to enforce these executive orders. And Congress, in fact, has been caught in its own vice because when it's tried to disclose information, it's been told it can't disclose information, for instance, the torture report that the Senate had put together um, because it, it contained classified information. And so part of what I want Congress to do is go back and reassess whether, in fact, all of these um, rules need to be put in place and whether... Whether the fact that something is classified by itself should be evidence that it would put national security at risk. Given my experience and experience of many people I know who've worked with um, information that's classified, there are a lot of documents that are that are identified as that have classification markings on them that really their disclosure would really do very little harm, if any, to national security. Um, it's redundant with what's in the paper that morning. And the courts treat the fact that it's been classified as if that's evidence that it would actually do harm to national security. So Congress could do something about that. Um, they could also make it clear that journalists can't be prosecuted under the Espionage Act to, to prevent journalists um, who are given information um, from being prosecuted for disclosing that information. So there are a number of other ways in which 
Congress could get into the act of actually reducing and clarifying the rules so that, you know, there's criminal sanctions for the kinds of things for which there should be criminal sanctions, which is, you know, when somebody steals secrets that really matter and disclose them in ways that do actual harm to national security, my own view is that should be criminally prosecuted. But that there's a lot of ways in which the criminal law creates criminal liability for so many people for things that don't really do harm to national security. And that's what we need to try and trim back. You also make the interesting proposal that there should be a defense that allows the accused to demonstrate that the release of information was in the public interest. And, you know, that kind of proposal is very interesting when we, for example, think about the Edward Snowden case. That's exactly right. You know, there there are instances when people disclose information because they think it's essential for the best interests of the public to know about that information. For instance, you know, take again the torture report. And they're held back from being able to disclose that information because the information is classified. And I'm not saying that every instance uh, where someone thinks it's a good idea, they should be allowed to disclose that information and, and therefore not be subject to criminal penalties. But there should be an affirmative dis- defense that a judge and jury could debate and determine whether, in fact, the decision to disclose that information was truly in the public interest and that the information that was revealed was important enough for the public to know about and that that, that makes up for the harm that was done or at least provides a, a, a reason to, to reduce the, the criminal charges that to which they'd otherwise be subject. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that is something that we should be taking into account. And as the law is currently structured, it doesn't create any room for judges or juries to to take that into account. And finally, and and you touched on this a little bit when you talked about the um, civil penalties that current government employees or former government employees can face when they don't follow the pre-publication review process. You suggest that once a government employee who has signed the agreement with the the government agreeing to pre-publication review, that that there should really be a one-year limit on that requirement. How will that help things in your view? Yeah, I think that what what we see is that the incentives all shift in the direction of encouraging people to overclassify information rather than um, underclassify information. And so among the incentives I'm interested in addressing is sort of changing those incentives by changing the sort of internal reward system. And then this pre-publication review process, which is the subject of some litigation right now, is another area in which there's real disincentives for people to share information with the public that is has nothing to do with the criminal sanction. It's that their information that they write is subject to review through pre-publication review process within each of the individual agencies, and every agency gets its, its own rules, um, and that lasts for your entire life. And that means that that people who have knowledge about the about the the way in which government works are really limited in terms of their capacity to, to interact with the public about it. And so one of the proposals I have is that that, that pre-publication review process only apply for a limited period of time, perhaps just a year. And that doesn't mean that it couldn't potentially be subject to criminal prosecution for, for knowingly disclosing 
classified information that's harmful to national security. Um, this is a totally separate system for reviewing writing um, and speeches that the former government employees who've had access to classified information are subject to. And I think there, there are little things like this that could make a big difference in terms of the ability of the public to better understand what the government is up to. And for people who have or have had access to classified information to, to share their knowledge with, with the American people and help them better understand what their government is doing. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Ona Hathaway, very much for joining us and for taking us all through a very interesting thought experiment. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.